Adult Podcast. My name is Sophia Hagolani Albal. And I'm Christopher Shagnon. Welcome to the third part of three of our interview with Professor Barry Gills. In this episode, we're going to have a call to action, shifting from an academic conversation to actions we can take in our personal lives and at a political level. We talk about the interaction of local and national politics and how we can take it beyond politics. We talk about the impact of digital community in our daily lives, the need for radical change, and trying to find a balance between the comforts of modernity and living a responsible life towards our communities and our planet. I do think, and something I appreciate with this, and I know is is part of the the core in in sharing this knowledge, is, uh, and I guess it goes back to the idea of of interaction on the local level, um, and how, like, although this is starting as something academics coming together, it it is so much more than that, and like that is one of those things of this wake up call that I, I really do appreciate. Because there is so much of like it's it's not just people studying things. It's not just policymakers. Uh, it's not just politicians. Even beyond policymakers, uh, it, it's regular people, and that is one of the like fundamental and most interesting things to me. And like, and that's where like the to me like the this interaction and and learning from. And exchanging knowledge with is so important because policymakers are so important to engage with. But I would also say, though, like, you know, it's being from the U.S. and looking at how divided politics are and how just looking at the idea of climate change has become a a political football uh, and how it's like it's, you know, either uh, it's it's like either it exists or it doesn't exist to a like political degree, like, you know, either you like, yeah, it's like yes or no. And being able to, to enter, like to engage with people. It's, it's interesting uh, that earlier we were discussing these false dichotomies and there's another one. I think that we have to be so wary of anything that comes in an answer of this or that yes or no right or wrong, because I don't think that that reflects this very rich, um, reality realities that we have to look at to be able to adequately understand, and, and and the level of understanding, say on the on the some basic facts about climate change varies greatly in different parts of the world. So I know that, for example, in Sweden, I think it's a, what I just read um, a transcript um, between um, Greta Thunberg and. Um, Alexandra Casio Cortez, um, which was available, and that that, that Greta said that uh, only about two percent of people in Sweden had uh, denied that climate change existed or was a human caused problem, whereas in the United States it's forty percent. So in those there are very very different situations around the world, and the, you know there's this sort of um, nature of the arguments that have to be made. You know, the different tasks and different challenges for different. Uh, political communities. You know, that's true, right? So there, there, are, there are some places where the problem is particularly acute that people should at least make the breakthrough to understand that they've been misinformed, systematically misinformed and misled, in fact, uh, lied to. Uh, but the truth is, like for example, in, in the case of some of the great uh, 
North American-based fossil fuel corporations that they um, and it's been documented that there have been campaigns over a prolonged period of time to to spread doubt over climate change science so that it's not definitive. There are too many questions. It might not be so, and, and that and that in itself has been an object of campaigning by certain interests who want to perpetuate their business models um, for fossil fuels. Now, now. Of course, now that's a problem not just for North Americans, but for the whole world. Um, so it, it really is—it is, it is a contest. It is a—it is a struggle, you know. But different people in different parts of the world have got a different set of challenges, depending on their own polity and where things stand in the state of the debate there, and the state of public understanding of the realities, of the science. I mean, in Britain recently. Uh, the, 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 I think there was a there was a significant change, and that had to do with uh, Extinction Rebellion, and its uh, prolonged civil disobedience actions, particularly in London, and over a thousand arrests through that. Uh, but then, you know, making a making a, along with uh, Attenborough's uh, documentary film, um, Climate Change: The Facts, which three million people saw on the night, in which you know he he made it his mission to try to get across to the public, please try now to accept this and understand how very, very serious this is urgent. This is a climate emergency. And then Parliament decided to declare a climate emergency. Now what follows from that, of course, is all important. What legislation, the New Environment Act, and so on. These things become, as you say, policy, policy, policy. Without government action, um, we we may be in serious trouble, and without coordinated international government actions you know, on agreed goals and programs that are actually implemented, not just declared, because there are too many declarations that are never fully f- fulfilled, and that's now we can't afford to do that. When when real commitments are made, they have to be met, and and the time frames have to be realistic, based on science, not based on the uh, lazy thinking or cowardice or other kinds of uh, political party ideological or other interests you know which want to delay things well we cannot delay things we cannot so and there's extractivism is in a way sort of everywhere um it involves so many things and uh, that we think that uh, looking at extractivism as an organizing concept in the social science terms is fruitful and, and being inclusive about the dialogue and the types of people that you're listening to and learning from and also to whom you're communicating and who you're engaging with and in what dialogues. All of these things are there to be done. This is part of a general social response to the crisis that we are living in. And things will never be the same again. The point is how chaotic they might get, how much out of our control they might get. And we have a crucial decade, 10 years left according to the IPCC. And th- you know, this is truly urgent. So that's why, as academics, we want to do something. We want to work on this. You know? We want to be part of it, uh, make our contribution for what it's worth, see what we can achieve. I think that's great, and I apologize if this kind of takes us away a little, but, um, but I think that one of the real challenges with kind of stepping back from this extractivist life world that we're living in 
And uh, forgive me um, if I make it a bit, if I sound a bit flip with this, but it's on a very individual day-to-day level living in the cognitive dissonance. It feels good. Feel like it's comfortable. The deeper you get into these kind of extractivist, the products of extractivism, the more maybe comfortable on a day-to-day basis an individual can be. You know, like eating strawberries in January, living in my warm house with my smartphone and my tablet, with my Alexa doing everything for me, uh, driving in my car, not having to wait in the snow for the bus, so on and so on and so on. So I think that it's it gets complicated in a way because as we brought up several times throughout this conversation, it's that stepping back from comfort in a way and finding that line. It's a real issue. And it truly is an important one, which every one of us confronts, because we, we, we like our comforts. I do. I'm used to them. And as you say, I mean, any particular individual, when you just look at anything we do, and you, you, made the, you make the example of diet. Yeah. I mean, we all, most of us now in the uh, high-income countries live in a way that was unimaginable, even just a few decades ago, much less centuries and the only only kings and queens and lords and ladies had anything like even approaching our diet, and they didn't, they didn't even have that. You know, we, this is truly remarkable, right? Uh, but you know, and it's 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 that same point again, saying you know, starting to learn more. Say, well, you know, is it really sensible that I should be eating these foods out of season that are transported 10,000 kilometers and so on, you know, and, or else why could I not eat more seasonal food that's grown at, at least sort of not too terribly distant? <laughs> could I grow a bit of my own, you know? Um, could I join with other people who are doing that? You know, can we, can we make um, the urban more rural? Could we change our lifestyles, as, as in many parts of the world people do? Uh, you know, still very much participating in some of uh, the activity that, that grows their own food. And the fact that, you know, people in cities today have, uh, many people have quite a bit of leisure time. And rather than it only being, say, just dedicated to entertainment or, or you know, other things that aren't part of our supporting our own living, as it were, you know, it, it, things can change. And also people might find it very rewarding I mean, I do. I've been, I've been, (laughs) my wife and I've had, uh, you know, an organic uh, um, garden, a big one, allotment they're called, you know, um, for a very, very long time. And it's part of our lifestyle, you know, and then you get used to it and there's a certain number of hours in a week and weeks in a year, you're, you're out there, but, you know, virtually always thoroughly enjoying it. It's part of recreating community because part of the critique of modernity that so many people in our field of development studies have made is that whilst you say all these material benefits, all these wonderful comforts, all these pleasures, and such a wonderful you know existence, so privileged and way at the and, and but also so individualizing, atomizing, alienating in so many ways, making us little islands of comfort to ourselves, right? And then dissolving or um, fragmenting 
um, or even removing profound, intimate, intimate community relations. But then human beings are social beings. So maybe that's why people are so much interested in their telephones, because it's connectivity. They've created a virtual community you know, to replace the, that, you know, to fulfill that human need for community, right? So in this new 21st century mode of existence, we make it real virtually. Hmm? But you see, there are many other ways that people could live, and they could make it real physically once again. And many people have advocated this and continue to advocate that as a, a major area of thinking about alternatives. That alternatives, in many ways, has to do with reestablishing our communities, our communal existence in reality, real, even face-to-face, -face, you know, in a space, you know, which, which in many ways has been missing or damaged, hmm? um, diminished, right? So it's a, it, that, there's part of that. You see, but what, what does make us happy? You know, we've been used to the fact that all those creature comforts, which are in many ways are, you know, wonderful. We enjoy them. But they're not the only way to live. And then the more we know about the reality of the negative aspects, the entropy, the, you know, the crisis elements, hmm? the global supply chains that go everywhere, you know, hmm? then the fact that, oh, this, uh, you know, this little candy bar I'm eating, this little sweet, has got palm oil in it. And, oh, sorry, but this palm oil came from a dodgy company out there that's using slave labor on its plantation. Hmm. And not only that, but they cut down the rainforest and destroyed it to build a vast plantation of palm oil plants, which is some, some people call a green desert. Hmm? It may be green, but it's not the rainforest. And once you cut down a rainforest, it doesn't come back. Not for centuries, at the least. Hmm? Maybe that candy doesn't taste so good anymore. Well, you have to know what it is you're eating. See, this is the thing. It's what's hidden. So much is hidden. And that, that needs to be made visible. Once you make it visible, this may change your whole way of thinking about it. Definitely. There are kind of like two things that I'm thinking with this. Going back to the idea of community, I guess reproducing the feeling of community digitally is such a modern problem. I mean, like wonderful in certain ways. As somebody who's lived away from home for a long time, I do appreciate uh Facebook and, and Skype and all these things that, that make it so much easier to be in contact with, with my friends and family back home. But at the same time, too, these reproductions of community do cut us off from our daily lives and the world around us. And, and one of the most destructive aspects, too, is it, it allows us to filter other points of view. Uh, and I, I think that is actually like feeds in so much to what we're talking about and how we're at the issues that we're at. And that it's, you know, on Facebook, like, you know, you can just unfollow or, or block somebody who uh, who's posting stuff that you don't like or agree with. I will say I've certainly done it. Um, and I realize it's uh, it leads to this echo chamber effect where you get people that just get into such a thing where they're only seeing their exact same ideas whipping around in such a way that they can't even comprehend that there could be an opposing point of view or where it could come from. Or even building on that, there's the deliberate act of creating, not creating this echo chamber through what we do, but what about that hidden algorithm 
that is designing our echo chamber for us in ways that we aren't even aware of. I mean, not to say I'm popular or anything, but, you know, I have 700 Facebook friends. I think I see posts from maybe 50 of them, you know, and sometimes I even wonder, I'm like, oh, I haven't seen X pop up in a really long time. You know, am I not friends with them anymore? I go, no, they're my friend. I'm following them. Oh, they posted two days ago, but Facebook isn't giving it to me for some mysterious reason. I think that's a very interesting point um, that, um, if if I'm not mistaken, Habermas uh, commented on, wrote about this quite some time ago, about um, you know the online um, public sphere, as it were, um, being fragmented and going into very small groups and uh, then don't listen to each other anymore. They just reproduce their own worldview constantly. And there's a tendency for that uh, to happen and uh, right, quite prominently. On the other hand, that's not everything. There's also a, a solidaristic and international solidarity or across so many different um, um, types of differences. Um, and increasingly right now, there are various movements going on out there to create ever larger coalitions of groups. I mean, by the hundreds of, of social movements or NGOs coming together in calls for international campaigning action together. These are happening. And there's a new wave of that discussion going on as we speak. Um, so remember that it's not only the fragmenting uh, echo chambers, which are very real, and perhaps many, many, many people are engaging in uh, without e even consciously realizing that that's what's happening. Uh, but there's also the other dimension also happening. As you were saying, we have an enabling technology right now which, which actually assists human reflexivity on an unprecedented scale that never existed before in human history. When we talk about the creation of a sphere, a public sphere that is global, we now have the technology that enables that to happen. That technology did not really exist in the past. It was not there. Hmm? So this is new. And actually, I think we use it to our advantage, or we can do, right? We, we can avoid using it simply as a way of uh, escapism or, for example, or to, by default, uh, participating in weapons of mass distraction. You know, anything but facing the truths of the massive problems that are challenging is even our existence in the future. Our species could become extinct. That's the truth. If things go very badly, um, our species will become extinct, possibly within, you know, a century. And this is dire. So, you know, we, in other words, I think it's, we, we cannot underestimate how urgent this is um, and how, how vast. That, so that's why I'm saying, you know, this is all part of that. We're encouraging people now to take it seriously. And we as academics, you know, want to try to help however modestly, you know. Um, but there's so much to be done in so many arenas. You know, we could start talking about all the big problems in the world, you know, and go through lists. But uh, if you think about it, restoring the soil, restoring the forests, uh, restoring the oceans, restoring the waters, restoring the, the balance in the atmosphere, in the air, just for starters. And just that is absolutely huge. Hmm? Uh, on, on every level, that your individual, community, global, all of them, <laughs> right? So you know, this is this can be it can be overwhelming, right? 
Uh, and in many ways it is. As you said, I don't know about cognitive dissonance, perhaps, that uh, I'm not sure if I see it that way, um, that I'm, but it is uh, a burden, um, but it's no good running away from it. It doesn't help. You're not part of anything positive if you do that. That's, that's actually going to, to change it. And then, you know, you're just going to sit back and say, well, um, let's see what happens. Well, I think that's irresponsible. Hmm? It might even be immoral, probably. Because if you think about it, I mean, I, I, over the years, you know, if you, we all, we, we, we all, uh, let's say about human, human heartedness and uh, love and care for other human beings. Um, and if we have, if we have families, if we have siblings and mothers and fathers and daughters and uh, sons and you know, families, and you say, uh, what about you know, what about my family? What about my uh, you know, who comes after? I, I mean, I have a granddaughter who's now two years old. Well, this is her century. If she lives the uh, you know or ordinary expectation that we've had, she'll live out this century. It's her life I'm talking about. You know. Uh, it's what Greta Thunberg has said, you know, you, you, we want our future back. So, you know, it's, this is all part of that. Our initiative, Exalt, is part of that. It's part of the response, a responsible and radical. We are self-professedly uh, critical social scientists. We don't want to just recapitulate old questions with, you know, uh, sort of, you know, slightly uh, tinkered answer <laughs> you know, we don't want to be participant to just reproducing the same old problems. I mean, people now use it a lot, and I like it, where Einstein said, you cannot solve any problem using the same methods that produce the problem. This is logic. So in other words, we really have to change. We cannot just solve these problems by nothing really changing, and none of our comforts will be affected, and actually everything will just stay normal. Well, it isn't going to. I, I think I can assure you from everything I've been reading lately, which is uh, just it is vast. The number of the, the amount of studies that I've been reading over the last two years say is like nothing in my whole lifetime. We're getting an avalanche, literally, of quite good, rigorous studies that are telling us how serious things have become in one vector after another. So and, you know, this is about understanding this as a reality of our time. That this century, our civilization, absolutely must be radically changed. Otherwise, it's going to be destroyed. So this is a, this is a fascinating conversation, and we could actually like we can keep going on this all day or or for days, years, and and hopefully like it will keep going in the future. And of course, uh, but we only have so much time in the day. So uh, thank you, Barry, so much for coming on and and talking with us and, and giving us a lot of really great insights and thoughts into. Uh, extractivisms, alternatives, the Exalt Initiative, and, and so many other things. Yeah, I definitely have a lot to think about uh, with my my views of reality from here on out. It's like uh, you can't unhear a song. Well, thank you, and uh, I think we've had a, a good conversation. Thank you for the engagement, and I'm very much looking forward to it continuing and involving many other people, and we'll listen to their views and their voice and we'll have to see the Exalt Initiative just become a real process. And hopefully it'll involve a lot of listeners and people who want to contribute from around the world, not just here in Helsinki. Barry, do you have any new articles or something like that that you might want to plug in that we could... One, the globalizations that, we, you know, that I edit. 
is about to do a full uh, issue length um, special on the World Social Forum uh, and its um, potential and its future. We're also doing another one on um, it's you know it's like assessing, uh, looking at uh, practices and debates within the World Social Forum in the past and what its future potential may still be for transforming the world and creating a kind of effective global politics. The other one that we're doing, which is even longer, it's uh, you know going to be like eighty thousand, we're a full issue, is on um, um, internationalism. And it, it was kicked off by Samir Amin, the late Samir Amin's uh, last call just before he died, that there should be, that the crisis is so deep and so acute that you have to now really reinvent some new kind of vehicle for uh, really serious political internationalism. He, he had always believed that, but he made one final call in a, his essay. And then we asked about, I don't know how many, maybe 15 or so um, different um, activist scholars uh, to write in response. Now, that doesn't mean they were endorsing what Amin had said, but that they, they, they would discuss the problem and bring their own ideas into it, some of which are very different from his. Yeah. So we're about to publish that. In other words, we're about to publish about this wave of reconsidering how to act on a global scale in ways that are politically effective, that affect policy, you know, that are political. So we're doing these two things, and these are coming up then. And also myself and Jamie Morgan, who's the economist, who's the editor of Real World Economics, we are writing a joint editorial paper on um, uh, the climate change crisis and um, responses. Well, don't worry, listeners. We will make sure to have links in the show notes to everything that Barry has brought up. We will make sure to give you a link to Globalization, the journal, which has some really exciting publications. And we will also put a link in there to Barry's University of Helsinki profile so you can stay up on the publications he is coming out with. Thank you very much to Professor Barry Gills for joining us today. And thank you very much, listeners at home, for coming with us on this three-part journey through the background of the Exalt Initiative and where it's going forward. If you want to hear more, we will be back the last Friday of every month with a new conversation with an academic, an activist, and other people who are working actively in the realm of extractivisms and alternatives. Our next interview will be with Eileen Puhala, another University of Helsinki professor, who will be joining us to talk about her experiences in the field researching activist practices. See you then.